Welcome to the Carbon and Cows podcast, brought to you by Washington State University and University of Idaho. This is Nina Gibson. In this podcast series, I dive into topics related to carbon markets and where dairy and livestock producers in the Pacific Northwest can play a role. Each episode, I interview an expert working at the forefront of this rapidly evolving landscape. From engineers to animal science experts, we go into some of the nuances of existing and emerging regulated and voluntary carbon programs and different aspects of project development that may impact their long-term economic success. Let's get started. In this week's episode, I interview Dr. Jordan Shockley. Dr. Shockley is an Associate Extension Professor and Farm Management Specialist within the Department of Agricultural Economics at the University of Kentucky. For the past two years, Dr. Shockley's work has been focused on carbon markets in the United States and the opportunities they provide to crop and livestock producers, as well as woodland owners. Dr. Shockley's understanding and ability to communicate on the economics and risks facing farmers surrounding carbon programs has led him to state, national, and international invitations to speak on the topic, which is why we are having him on the show today. In this week's episode with Dr. Shockley, we discuss what is currently happening within voluntary carbon markets for livestock and agricultural producers within the United States and risks within these markets producers should be aware of. Dr. Shockley discusses the increase in consumer demand for sustainably sourced products driving companies to reduce emissions within their supply chains and where voluntary carbon markets can come into play. We cover some of the dynamics of these markets and how business organizations adopting climate and sustainability goals will likely rely on carbon insetting in the future to achieve these goals. Carbon insetting refers to a company reducing carbon emissions within their own supply chain. Dr. Shockley goes into some of the implications this practice can have for agricultural producers if they fall within a company's supply chain who is considering carbon insetting. Dr. Shockley also gives an update on the status of the proposed rule by the Securities and Exchange Commission, which would require publicly traded entities to report on their direct as well as indirect greenhouse gas emissions, which may put pressure on agricultural producers if they fall within a publicly traded entity's supply chain to reduce their emissions as well. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Carbon and Cows podcast. Jordan, I'm really excited to have you on with us today. Thank you for carving out some time to join us. Absolutely. Glad to be here. So to start us off, Can you help our listeners understand the differences between voluntary and regulated carbon markets? Absolutely. So, you know, when we think about kind of the overall thing about carbon, right, you know, there's two kind of general market drivers um, out there demanding carbon credits. Um, And those two is, you know, one of them is voluntary, as you mentioned. And the other is regulated or like called compliance-based market systems. Okay, so the difference here is one of them, um, the compliance-based or regulated markets, are um, basically when state or federal governments are limiting the amount a company um, can emit from a greenhouse gas standpoint, and so they regulate that as a quote cap and trade style um, market. And so those companies that over emit <clears throat> above that limit that they can have to go out and they have to either reduce internally their greenhouse gas emissions or go to an external market and purchase carbon credits to offset their emissions. Okay. On the other hand, there's what we call the voluntary market where a there's no state or federal regulations 
um, like in the United States for the most part, in Kentucky where I am. There's no cap-and-trade program in the state. However, companies are voluntarily committing to some sort of greenhouse gas reduction or pledge in the future. And so, you know, it's common in a lot of companies, you'll see, you know, we want to become net neutral by 2040, right, or 2050 or sometime in the future. That is a voluntary commitment that these companies are making, and it's not – mandated by state or federal law. And so these are voluntary commitments that these companies are trying to meet. And um, they're doing that for a few reasons um, why they would voluntarily commit to that. You know, one of it's dri driven by stakeholders. Um, stakeholders are, are demanding some sort of uh, environmental uh, responsibility from the companies as well as consumers. Uh, we have a very con uh, environmentally conscious consumers out there um, driving this market and demanding that the products they purchase and the things that they spend their money on have some sort of environmental pledge. And so the demand is at the consumer and at the stakeholder level. And so that's kind of the main difference is one's being forced on you <laughs> by regulations. The other one's just a voluntary commitment to try to meet uh, consumer demand or stakeholder needs. Okay, excellent. And for your time here today, Jordan, I would like to focus on the voluntary markets, but just because, you know, you live in an interesting part of the country where there's a lot going on in terms of agricultural production, I am curious what type of producers in the Midwest and on the East Coast are maybe participating in the regulated carbon markets that we see on the West Coast those in California and Oregon, um, mostly those two right now? Yes. Yeah, so we have, um, you know, from a voluntary carbon market side that are, you know, producers um, in our area, you know, grain and in the livestock sector, there's limited participation in these voluntary markets, but those that do, um, you know, they're they're enrolling in carbon programs that are not necessarily directly towards companies on the West Coast, but maybe companies that um, verify their carbon credits and then sell them to companies in the West Coast um, that may have uh, these regulated environments. Um, an interesting one that uh, your uh, listeners may be interested in is, for example, um, in the Appalachia region of the United States, there are quite a few timber carbon market contracts that are serving that volunteer or that uh, compliance-based market on the West Coast. So those West Coast companies are buying carbon credits generated from the forestry sector on the East Coast. Okay. Very interesting there. Um my next question is, you know, carbon markets in general are pretty complex, uh, partly because there are many players involved in them. Can you talk through who the various players are and their roles? <laughs> that's a that's an excellent question. And it just, I, you know, there's different and similarity, similar players in these various sectors um, in agriculture. So, you know, what I've been researching and looking into and educating um, stakeholders across the United States are in those that are in the uh, grain sector, those that are in the livestock sector, and those that are in the timber sector. The timber sector kind of sits out in its own world. Um, it's, it's different players because um, it's a different type of um, system and, and setup. And so, um, there are more voluntary carbon programs available for row crop producers in the United States than there are livestock. Um, but there are similar players. And so um, depending on what sector you're in, the eligibility for those um, to meet those is uh, – or have that opportunity to enroll uh, is depending on that. And so – uh, me. So for the grain sector, there's about 15 or 20 carbon programs 
um, that are out there for folks to enroll in and it's location dependent. Um, the way that a lot of these carbon programs operate is they'll pick a state to kind of pilot a program or a specific area and if successful we'll roll it out to multiple uh, states or US wide. Um, and so some common names in the grain sector that you may may heard of, um, ecosystems, uh, service market, indigo, ag, uh, Corteva, Agro, Bayer, I mean, there's a host of them. But what you have to realize is, is that um, these, it depends on the type of company um, and the difference between what is called an offset and an inset carbon credit or carbon market. And so what that means is if a producer, just say a, row, a corn soybean farmer enrolls in a carbon program that generates a carbon pro carbon credit and then it gets bought from a company outside of the agriculture space or right outside the ag supply chain let's just say it's um, an airline company if that airline company buys that carbon credit that was generated it's called a carbon offset because it's out because that carbon credit was is outside of that airline's direct supply chain um, system right so however an inset would be let's just say in my neck of the woods if a bourbon company has a voluntary program to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and they contract directly with the farmer to say you're going to um, you, you know you sign this contract to generate a carbon credit to uh, and plan on adopting climate smart agriculture practices that is within that bourbon company supply chain and so that's called an inset so it's whether it's dictated whether it's not it's within the supply chain of the the buyer or not inside the supply chain of the buyer and so you, you're seeing a lot of more um companies reverting over to carbon insets now for a host of reasons one there's more control two they can tell the story better and the risk is a lot lower um there's a uh, quite a few lawsuits out there right now um, in the united states for companies that have bought carbon offsets and have been accused of green uh, greenwashing and there's a lot of companies out there that are saying we're not buying any more carbon offsets we're going within our supply chain so for example a, a company like bayer who's an input supplier to farmers that's within their supply chain that, that they can then have a contract with farmers to create carbon credits and to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and so that's what we're seeing also in the livestock sector Companies like Tyson, companies like Purdue, they're going internally um, at the farm level and saying, you know, cooperating and working with farmers to adopt carbon smart practices that generate carbon credits that they can then utilize within the company. So they're not turning around and selling the carbon credits. They're going in and keeping them internally. And so I anticipate a lot more quote carbon programs under the carbon inset model rather than the carbon offset model. Okay. And would you say that companies are looking at insetting more because there's less risk and uncertainty involved maybe? I'm, I'm not totally sure how that all works. Absolutely. I think it's um, familiar, familiarity within the supply chain, within the activity. So especially in agriculture where just the um, verifying and the actual quantifying of sequestering carbon is challenged by scientists um, on actually if you can even measure it, let alone if it's accurate. It is 
there's a lot of risk around the science and, and the quantity and the models that have been used to estimate how much could potentially be sequestered. So it's more about trusting the models. And you can imagine if a, a company is buying carbon offsets from the ag community, that, the ag sector, that knows nothing about production agriculture, does not know anything. Like That is a very risky proposition when they're just trusting that the seller knows best and rather than um a company like nestle or bayer or some of these you know very large ag companies or food and beverage mm. companies that understands where their product comes from they may not exactly know ex the practices that they're asking farmers to do which is another issue However, having that relationship, building trust to learn and understand, I think um, reduces that risk internally if they're going to spend money. Every company's got their eye right now on this Delta Airlines lawsuit that's based out of California class action where the claim is that Delta purchased carbon offsets from a forestry-based carbon market and we're claiming things that didn't exist mm. yet is what it is. And so unfortunately that lawsuit could potentially be copied and pasted to a lot of companies that were trusted that these carbon credits were true and real. And so I think from a legal standpoint, they are pulling back from the carbon offset market um, a lot of companies even announced have announced that, and they are looking internally within their supply chain to reduce their baseline or measure their baseline first and then reduce that carbon footprint internally within their um, – especially in their scope three um, emissions. Okay. Awesome. Thank you for explaining that. Very interesting. Hopefully it was clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to move us to our next question here. Uh, given that carbon markets are relatively new and still evolving, what challenges or opportunities do you think this presents for dairies or other livestock producers who want to explore them? Are there any risks that they should be aware of? Uh, yes. I mean, a, a lot of my discussion and when I talk to producers around the country, it's all about risk. Um, and I think first and foremost, the producer, whether it's in dairy, livestock, grains, they need to clearly understand what they are contractually obligated to do to meet the demands of the carbon program that they're potentially enrolling in. Usually that is in the appendix of these contracts. Um, so understanding exactly what's required, number one. Number two, what happens if there's a breach of that contract? And three, once they understand what's required, understanding the cost to do that practice or practices, because oftentimes the practices that are being asked producers to adopt, the payment that they receive does not offset the cost currently under current market prices. And so okay. you have to understand that not only do they not cover the direct cost, they do not cover the cost of any risk of changing the practices. Um, for example, in the row crop space, if you're adopting cover crops, which is a practice that um, uh, these carbon programs are paying for, you better understand the cost to plant and establish and terminate that cover crop, as well as any risk to the cash crop following where you might have yield reductions that are not covered. So there's a host of things that you need to understand um, just from that element. Um, and these contracts um, can be very complicated 
um, especially those that are companies that aren't familiar with agriculture but want to be in the carbon market space. Um, and so I have highly recommend individuals that are approached or, or interested in carbon markets and sign up with a carbon program to seek legal advice. And it's not just some general lawyer, someone that knows agriculture and ag lawyer, because these contracts are very complicated. And they vary in length. So they range from, you know, five year to 10 year commitments to 100 years. Okay, that's a long time. <laughs> so you have to understand contract length demands on what you need to do, what happens if there's a breach of contract. There's a lot of questions right now surrounding how these contracts are tied to the operation. So in, for example, most row crop related carbon contracts are tied to the land owner. So if the land owner decides, if the land sells, he wants to get out, they sell it and the contract's terminated. However, with something like a forest carbon contract, that's actually tied to the land itself as an easement. And so if you go to sell that land, it better be disclosed. <laughs> so there's a lot of discussions right now um, around different states on how these carbon contracts should be disclosed during land sales. Um, so um, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of questions. Um, I think understanding what you're getting into because you have to ask the right questions. Um, so being knowledgeable, just don't look at the price you think you're going to get paid because oftentimes the price that you're getting paid is in the form of, you know, do dollars per metric ton of CO2 equivalent. Not what we're used to in agriculture is dollar per acre or dollar per head or dollar per gallon, whatever. I mean, it's um, it's different terminology. And so all of these um, companies are utilizing models to estimate how much you could sequester. And so there's, you know, how accurate that model is goes to how reliable that company is and how if they can get it, those credits verified to then sell them. And so understanding payment structure is a big one too. Some companies offer you money. Some offer you discounts on certain inputs. Some of these companies pay you in cryptocurrency and it's not even Bitcoin. So understanding some of these details, intricacies with these contracts, it, it, it's challenging. So definitely seek knowledge and expert uh, experts to help you out with this. Um, I'm feel, fielding calls all the time. Just got one this afternoon from a livestock producer. That's um, I've been approached by a company wanting them to enroll in a carbon contract. So, um, so there's a, there's a lot that go that's going on um, in these voluntary carbon offset markets. Okay, and just as kind of follow up to that, what are some things I should be looking for in a project developer or company who is wanting to partner with me on one of these carbon contracts? Just sort of some things I should be looking out for maybe. Absolutely. So, you know, thinking about a partner, that, I, I, flexibility, familiarity, um, or two of the things that come to mind. Do you know the the individuals? Are they based locally or regionally? You know, are they, in, for example, are they in the Midwest and understand row crop production, or are they a Silicon Valley carbon company that's a venture capitalist that wants to go out and has has players that are buy want to buy carbon contracts and then they're just facilitated in on the on the back end and they don't really know um or understand how you produce food and grain i mean so i think you know 
a lot of times um, you, here in the recently, most of these carbon comp contracts and carbon companies and farmers are being approached by people that they're familiar familiar with, specifically their input salesmen, salesmen like that are representatives from Corteva, you know, Cargill, Bayer, Nutrien. They all have some sort of carbon program. And so it's usually going to be one of those individuals that you may have been dealing with for years and are and trust and that they understand that the practices that they're asking you to do and how it would impact not only directly but indirectly your business. And so I think tread with caution, um, especially on some of these promises on payments, because as we all know, there are new companies coming out in this space monthly. There's a lot of money to be had. And as fast as all these companies will come, they can easily go away. And we saw that with the Chicago Climate Exchange 20 years ago with carbon markets. And so just being aware um, and how easy it is to, quote, get out of the contract. <laughs> I mean, some of these are really tough and understand that you have to pay back money um, if you do have a breach of contract. And so I, I think some of these things you've got to think through. What do you want to do long term? What's your goals? What's your mission and goals of the business, right? Um, and does a carbon contract <laughs> fit into that goal of your business? And if you think you're doing it to get rich, that's not the case. I mean, we're not talking huge amount of dollars. I mean, we're talking maybe if you're lucky, 20 to $30 an acre on the row crop side of things. My friends down in Texas, it's more like $2 an acre. So these prices and these these prices and is based on how much you can sequester, and it's not static across the U.S. Yeah. Okay. Well, you've given us a lot of really great insight already, Jordan. Uh, my next question is, are there any specific questions farmers should be asking themselves or whoever is approaching them before deciding whether or not to participate in a particular carbon program? The specific question was, do I know a good lawyer? That would be number one. Do I have that resource? Um, and am I willing to make changes in my business? Um, as an economist myself, right? Do I know my cost of production? Do I understand what the cost is to make these changes? And am I willing to take on this risk to sign a long-term contract, right? You also have to think that a lot of these, a lot of our farmers out there aren't going to be able to enroll because they rent a lot of land and you've got to own the land because it's tied to the landowner. So there's risks involved there um, with this. And so, um, just understand that there are quite a few risks and are you willing to bear the risks associated with these voluntary carbon markets? Now, will I, what I will, um, advise, uh, your audience is even though you're not maybe willing to enroll in quote voluntary carbon markets right now. Are you ready for an environment where we turn from a voluntary market to a voluntold market? Where companies that you're selling your product to require you to do climate smart ag practices, or you can't sell your product to that company? We are there now, and I don't want to do use a fear factor, but it's happening, and it's happening fast on companies required. And I'm not saying that 
all companies are even going to offer a premium for you to do that. To do those practices. So, so does your financials and your cost of production, can you bear an additional cost to implement these practices without having additional revenue to offset that cost? The biggest issue that a lot of companies are seeing is consumers want environmentally friendly products, but initial research suggests that they're not willing to pay more for it. So if that's the case, who along the supply chain is going to bear the cost of implementing those environmentally friendly, climate smart, sustainable practices at the farm level and we all probably can guess what the answer is to that question and are farmers willing to understand their cost enough to, to pencil in that conduct some sensitivity analysis in the next year or two to see okay what happens if that's the case what happens if i'm a dairy and have to invest in anaerobic digestion because it's required. Can you cash flow that? <laughs> and so this is kind of what I'm seeing as the 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 way these carbon markets are involved evolving because of the companies abandoning these offsets and going inside the supply chain and saying, okay. I'm going to um, require my grain base to adopt climate smart practices because X, Y, and Z company has to meet their goals for carbon emissions. So, um, and if you look at any large companies in the food and agribusiness sector, every one of them has a claim that's directly tied to farmers and what they're going to do. Everyone from McDonald's to a Cargill or so uh, this is where I see the momentum going and are farmers prepared for, for a environment like that. There's a lot of talk about, and it has been for a little while, about decommoditizing agriculture. And so do you understand operating contract basis? Yeah. Is that tied to um, some of what you just discussed there, the proposed SEC rule regarding publicly traded entities having to potentially report on their emissions, scope one, two, and three emissions? So it, in part, luckily, the so that ruling was initially thought of as if you're a publicly traded company and you are claiming scope one, scope two, and scope th or scope three greenhouse gas reductions, you've got to prove it, right? And so the difficulty there was if you're an agribusiness company or if a majority of your scope three emissions come from farmers – how are we going to do that? You know, and so luckily, um, the new ruling is that agriculture is exempt. Oh, okay. From the new ruling, which I, it just came out about two weeks ago, after being open for questions for for a year and a half or so, and so luckily, um, the SEC ruling is that way. However. The bigger issue, I think, is is the ruling that just happened in California, that if you're in a company over a certain billion – I don't know if it's $4 billion or $5 billion, I'm not can't, quite sure if I remember the number – over that in revenue, you are required to disclose your Scope 1, Scope 2, and Scope 3 emissions by 2025. How many aggregate? How many agribusinesses are – and it's not 
agribusiness, it's not companies just based in California, it's companies that also do business in California, is the way the ruling reads. So think about the sheer number of agriculture companies that are in California or doing business in California. Food, beverage, I mean, you name it. Um, so there's going to have to be disclosures on that. And so what I think will potentially happen is because these companies are going to have to disclose, they want to potentially get ahead of it. And so when they do disclose, it's a lower baseline because they've worked internally within their supply chain to lower those emissions early from a scope three perspective. And sorry, would you mind explaining what these uh, scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions are that we're talking about here? That is a very good question. So scope one emissions come from basically those greenhouse gas emissions that come directly from a facility. So let's just say you your company vehicles, right? Company owns a fleet of vehicles. Those vehicles emit greenhouse gases. So a way a company could reduce scope one emissions would be to, let's just say, adopt all electric vehicles. For example, scope two emissions are how they basically power their company. <clears throat> so that's electricity, steam, heating, cooling. So if a company gets all their electricity from coal, maybe they switch to wind energy to reduce their greenhouse gas scope two emissions so those two are in their direct control as a company scope three emissions is everything along the supply chain from the upstream and downstream activities so for example a farmer that supplies wheat to a mill that provides biscuits to McDonald's, right? That farmer is under the scope three emissions of McDonald's. And so it's all these downstream and upstream activities that a lot of companies don't have direct control over. And that is significant portion of their overall greenhouse gas emissions. So for example, some of the top 100 food and beverage companies in the United States, roughly 85 to 90% of their overall greenhouse gas emissions come from scope three out of their control. So you can see how these companies are wanting to go internal within their supply chain to control because roughly 90% is sitting there to be able to reduce from a scope three standpoint. Now it's very difficult because they don't have control, but instead of going to the offset market, they're going internally. And so hopefully that kind of clarifies the difference between scope one, scope two, and scope three. One and two you can control. Three is basically all your input suppliers, um, transportation to deliver a product to an uh, end consumer, all that stuff. Okay, great. My next question is, how can farmers understand what a fair price is for their practice in terms of credit generation? Are there particular resources out there they can use in decision making or to understand pricing better? So absolutely. I think it, it goes back to my comment earlier, right? One is understanding exactly the practices that are that are required by the contract you are thinking about signing. And then once you understand the practices, understand the cost associated with implementing that practice. And obviously a fair price would be a price that would pay for that practice, maybe a premium, especially to cover the risk associated with any indirect costs that you may have, like a yield reduction maybe. So I think understanding all of those um, is critical to understanding a, quote, fair price. But part of that is because the pricing is typically 
done in a per metric ton of CO2 equivalent or one carbon credit generated, the farmer has to understand what is the potential that they can sequester by adopting the practices that they are about to sign a contract for. <clears throat> Those vary on the row crop space, very spatially and over time, right? Um, so understanding that and any requirements to adhere to that practice um, and validate or verify that you are doing those practices and the additional costs associated with that is critical. And I can tell you right now, fair price, most companies uh, do not offer pricing right now that will cover the cost of implementing those practices. Now you may hear, you may hear a couple coffee shop discussions where mm -hmm. someone might go out and say, oh, I, I'm making all this money per acre, $100 an acre. Well, there were stories about that, but turns out some of the modeling that paid them that price, the model was wrong. So they had to roll back and scale back. Also, sometimes um, these programs offer a little bit more for a pilot project, proof of concept, that may offer a little bit higher price if you're you know, an initial enrollee of these carbon programs, of an individual carbon company. And so um, right now, overall, that's why you don't, that's one of the major reasons you don't see a lot of enrollment in carbon markets. It's the, it's the price. And, you know, farmers hear these popular press stories, coffee shop stories of getting rich on carbon. That is not the case. And so um, you just have to, you know, fair price. My, if I had a crystal ball, right, I, I typically get the question, well, you know, is carbon pricing ever going to get there, right, to where it needs to be? And I say yes, if these voluntary pledges stay with companies and the the closer we get to that time frame of when those pledges are, 2040, 2050, and these companies are making these pledges for, closer we get to that, supply demand, right? Demand's going to go up. The closer we get, prices should increase um, in offerings for these contracts. Uh, but I have a feeling we may make a shift towards this insetting type market where uh, we might not see that $100 a metric ton pricing in a true voluntary program uh, market like, like we're in right now. But understanding your costs and make sure that the price covers your costs because um, yeah, again, there's a lot of a lot of noise out there that is unjustified. Sure. No, that all makes sense. Um, moving kind of towards our last question here. Um, many farmers are concerned about the long-term viability of carbon markets. Common concerns are usually about the stability of carbon credit prices, which you've touched on, and the potential for changes in market regulations over time. How do you think carbon markets will play out in the long run? Do you know of any changes coming that can have an impact on their success or lower the risk for producers wanting to get involved? Absolutely. So as I've mentioned throughout this conversation, there's a host of risks. And um, I think from a company standpoint, looking to buy offsets and from the farmer standpoint, we have to have some sort of standardization you know many times you hear any discussion about carbon markets from someone like myself or some of my other colleagues right it's all about it's the wild west out there in this carbon space right yeah. it's because there's no standard and i think that's a opportunity for usda to come in 
especially on the scientific methodology to validate the models that estimate carbon sequestration. If there's a standard playing field across these companies, the buyers will be more comfortable and the farmers would be more comfortable and it wouldn't be guessing on how much they would get paid or how much they could sequester. I equate it to um, kind of the organic market. We're kind of in the space before USDA stepped in and put in a USDA organic certified standards in place. Pre that, it's kind of what we're in right now. And some of the proposed legislation early on was to basically create a standard through USDA and what I equate to a USDA certified carbon credit, but that did not pass through to final legislation. They paired that back quite a bit. So I see opportunities for USDA to step in to do some standardization. I think that may uh, boost participation in these carbon markets. Um, from a policy standpoint, there could be more compliance-based markets in the future by state. I think that's uh, not unheard of. Um, I think that, you know, in the next 10 years, we will see more of this contract-based direct with from the ag side of things inside the supply chain within an ag company um, that is trying to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions internally through insets. That's where I see it moving. Now, ideally, if that does happen, there will be a premium for that product being produced. Um, but uh, I, I'm not 100% sure that because who's going to bear the cost uh, for that? Um, and if that gets passed through to the consumer for those products. So, um, but I see that's the transition long-term um, being more contract-based. So you may be growing a hundred acres for of wheat for McDonald's, 200 acres of corn for a Purdue feed mill to under climate smart practices to reduce, to have a, chicken breast that's greenhouse gas neutral um you can you know you name it that that's where i see it going because all these companies have reasons for doing so from a risk standpoint and so uh, that's kind of my crystal ball so in the long-term outlook and you know we're currently doing extension education to help farmers and ranchers prepare for this scenario because I don't think they are aware of what's going on unfortunately yet because um, every company has a pledge and every company seems like they're going to work directly with farmers to implement climate smart practices uh, are uh, do farmers know this right I mean and we all know, for example, in Kentucky, all of our farmers have been doing no-till for the home of no-till production. That's one of the practices that gets paid for. However, our farmers can't roll in it for something to, you know, the concept of additionality, which means you have to do something new that you haven't done before to sequester additional carbon. Well, if you've already been doing it, you don't qualify for these carbon programs. So you're penalizing people that have been doing quote climate smart agriculture practices for 60 years that that's not right and we're trying to change that perception as well so hopefully there's that those that aren't eligible currently hopefully in the next 10 years will be eligible and but how that ends up playing out between the inset and offset markets for agriculture 
I just think the dynamics is too the risk and variability in agriculture, weather, and being able to actually measure sequestered carbon is too volatile to be in a true offset market um, because you're you're already seeing it from companies backing out now because of the risk. Okay. Well, you touched on some really great points there, Jordan. Um, is there anything else you feel is worth mentioning before we let you go today? All I say is, like I said, if you're interested in these carbon markets, carbon programs, just seek expert advice, whether it's myself, a lawyer, someone in your state that is familiar with these carbon programs, utilize extension. Um, we are the unbiased source of information. And so um, we are not here selling anything. We are here to help you and, um, and advance your business uh, the best way possible that we can. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jordan. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you for the invite. Appreciate it. Join us next time on the Carbon and Cows podcast, where I speak with Embry Bronstad, wastewater engineer at Brown and Caldwell, where she gives producers a small crash course on operating an anaerobic digester and some considerations before installing one on farm. See you then. Thank you for listening to the Carbon and Cows podcast. You can subscribe to the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For articles or links to resources mentioned in the podcast, as well as our contact information, please see the show notes. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission to support dairy and livestock industry. So please rate and review the podcast or reach out to us through email if you have any questions or if there are topics you would like for us to address in future episodes. The Carbon and Cows podcast is produced by the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources at Washington State University. Editorial oversight and technical content expertise is provided by Georgine Yorgi, Marcos Marcondes, and Shannon Nybergs from Washington State University and Hernan Tejeda from the University of Idaho. Aaron Whitmore provided production assistance. Other podcasts in the series are available at the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources website, csanr.wsu.edu.